Good morning. So, um, as advertised as Shabbos, um, throughout the United States, uh, the organization called NASAC, National Association of Hebra Kaddishas, uh, which our Hebra Kaddisha is a member of, and actually particularly close to Zone, who runs that, uh, ha- is pushing for people to have a, a better understanding about uh, traditional burial, traditional preparation for burial. So I really uh, am taking that opportunity today um, to talk about things that I see very often. Uh, today's lecture, which I called it, Preparing for One's Final Journey, uh, is, it will touch on the spiritual in the sense that if we are prepared materially, it's great spiritual preparation for yourself, for your friends and loved ones. Uh, I, I, I um, as, as advertised, um, I have uh, I'm almost weekly, if not daily, uh, interaction with this. Um, I'm the rabbinical head of the Chavar Kaddisha. Just the past two days, I dealt with a few things on these type of matters. I've got my legal background is in trusts and estates. So I, 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 the things I picked today, I think, are just common things that I saw. It's by no means comprehensive. I would say this is just a primer about things which everybody should be thinking about. So I said on Shabbos, I just reiterate that when I was in law school, uh, I, I actually, I can never imagine just being a lawyer uh, and you know, doing transactions and not having deep relationships with people. So I'm thinking, what kind of law would I do where I possibly could have a deep relationship? So I decided I'd be a family attorney because you get to know the families like really well. And, and I actually had an offer to intern for with one of the number one uh, family attorneys in the state of Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, really top, top attorney. And I mentioned this to Mori Verabi, how going of Shmuel Kamenetsky, and if Shmuel Kamenetsky told me, absolutely not. Uh, and he said very simply, if you are a family attorney, you will always be hurting people, period. Because you have to represent your clients, and that doesn't make a difference of which mother or which father or which or how the, the state should be divided. If you're in family law, your job is to represent your client and not to be judicious necessarily. So he was very against that. When I discussed trust in the state, he thought that was great. And he said, um, trust in the state's really inherently you get to help people. Um, when I was in law school, I think I mentioned this uh, uh, over the years once or twice, uh, I had a professor, my trust in the state's professor, his name is Bruce Mann. So Bruce Mann, at the time, had been a, a University of Pennsylvania Law School professor for many years. Uh, he later had a demotion, and he's now in Harvard uh, University. Uh, but the reason he went to Harvard is because his wife, uh, his, his wife's name is Elizabeth Warren, so who's a senator in Massachusetts. So Bruce Mann is married to Elizabeth Warren, and Bruce Mann would start every trust in the state's class, literally every class with, as follows. He had cut out about 30 years of Dear Anne and Dear Abby articles. And they were always about a family feud. And they were always about family feuds that happened because of, uh, of end-of-life issues. Obviously, Dear Anne and Dear Abby had many topics they talked about, but he specifically looked for the ones that were talking about end-of-life issues, whether it was care for a parent at the end of life, whether it was estate planning. And really, it would start like, my sister got this, 
I hate her guts. And so Professor Mann would start, what could you do to prevent this? And he always said, these, everyone you see on this paper, of these real life family things, could have either been prevented or mitigated. If they had the right preparations, it could have been prevented or mitigated. Now, we just read a few weeks ago that when Joseph and Yosef interprets Paro's dreams, after telling Paro that you need somebody to collect all of the produce for the next seven years, because what's going to happen is that uh, there's going to be this famine. And if you're not prepared for the famine, you're going to starve. But if you're prepared, you'll be okay. So what does Yosef say? You need an ish, chacham, v'navon. A wise and discerning man. And then at that point, Paro says, there's nobody wiser and more discerning than you, Joseph. You should be the viceroy of Egypt. But the Mepharshim, the commentators say, why was it necessary to point a wise and discerning person? And the answer the Bali Musar give is because when, pe- when things are going right, when everyone's healthy, when everyone's happy, and you're going on with your life, very few people prepare ahead of time. In other words, to be a wise and discerning person is a person who sees into the future. Right? right now, things are going smoothly. Right now, nobody's sick. Right now, we have money. Right? A wise and discerning person says, okay, I'm 35 years old, I'm 28 years old, I'm 50 years old. Let me prepare for my retirement. But more importantly, let me prepare that my family shouldn't be hurt. That I should get my, you know, your last will and testament. You think about those words. Your last statement, your last reality in this world, and you don't know where that's going to be. So we need to be wise and discerning to plan ahead of time. Because if we don't make the decisions, others will. And very often, um, the wrong decisions are very often, you'll end up having a story that could be in Dear Anne or Dear Abby of hurting people of forcing people to make decisions that they should not be making, to ripping families apart over lack of proper preparation. I, I know people, because you know, I've even got calls, just because of my background, from people from different communities, they asked me to get involved. And I, I, I remember I had one case from Florida, they, they knew I have a rabbi, I have trust states, so they called me up, this family... The, the parents destroyed their kids because the kids don't talk. The, they got sick over a well, literally physically sick. And so much of that was very preventable. So we're going to talk about these type of topics today. You know, and if we're wise and discerning, if we're chacham v'navon, we will help ourselves. If you have parents or grandparents, loved ones, children, relatives... This is very pertinent and germane information for everybody at every age. Number one, first topic I would just discuss, uh, being about wise and, uh, and discerning, is life insurance. There are over a dozen major chuvas, major responsa uh, about life insurance. All either say it's a good idea or it's actually a commandment. Uh, if you're Ashkenazi or Moshe Feinstein, uh, has a tshuva where he said, it, it, you know, why, why is it responsible? Because some people would say it's a lack of faith. What are you buying life insurance when you're very young? 
Now, I'll tell you, I've had life insurance for years. Why do I have life insurance for years? To be, I don't know if I would have thought about it in my 20s, uh, but my father-in-law, uh, it was insistent that I get life insurance. Why does my father-in-law insist it? My father-in-law was uh, one of the heads of something called Hatsala in New York. He actually had the largest private paramedic company, personal business in New York. And he saw many people die, and some of them, unfortunately, including his best friend, who was in a car accident 25 years ago, died suddenly. And you, you see what it means to have a f- young people with their family, uh, and you don't plan for that. So he was actually, you know, I, he, he, he didn't really ever ask me how I use my money or do whatever, but he was insistent that I get life insurance because he saw what it means for somebody who's young, a young wife, kids, or, you know, and not to have life insurance. Ramir Shapiro, anyone heard of Ramir Shapiro? Right, the founder of the Dafyomi. Ramir Shapiro had no children, okay? Um, but he had a very, very life insurance, large, large life insurance policy. Why? Because the yeshiva that he founded was called Chachmei Lublin, which he built with his own hard work, grit, determination. It was the largest yeshiva in Poland. He was the, he was the fundraiser for, for it. And it, it. The yeshiva was funded based on the charisma of Ramir Shapiro, based on his being dynamic. And actually, Ramir Shapiro was not only the founder of Dafyomi, not only the founder of this big yeshiva, he was, on the, he was in the Polish parliament. And he was a wonder man. He actually, actually died very young, relatively. I remember my grandmother, my, my Bobby told me she was in Poland in 1935 when he passed away, and she said Poland went into depression. Right, you know, absolutely. 1933, because when he passed away, it went really. It was so saddened. It was right after Chavetz Chaim passed away. Um, but Ramir Shapiro bought a large life insurance policy. Why? Because he felt an obligation to the yeshiva, and he put the yeshiva as the recipient of this life insurance policy. So Ramayisha is asking, "Why should you? Where's your faith? Insurances, you know." Something's going to go wrong. If somebody lives to 90 years old, you don't need life insurance. Right? It's not going to really pay too much either. Right? So where is the, where is the faith? The Chavetz Chaim was asked. So uh, the Ramayish was asked. And Ravadi Yosef were asked. And what they both said is, it's, it's not an, a lack of, of, of faith, but it's actually they held that God empowered us to make rightful decisions, to make smart decisions, and to, just like you plan ahead and everything else, this is considered wise planning. And they, Moshe held, it was mandatory, Yaakov Kamenetsky. I saw that Rav Vosner, who was one of the greatest sages of Israel, said that life insurance, life insurance comes before Miser. Why does it come before tithing? Because it's a basic necessity. It's a basic necessity. You know, I, I, you, ever, sometimes you see these people die young, mothers or fathers, you can, they can, these communications, you get these stuck, all these people didn't have life insurance. It wouldn't be the case if they had life insurance. You'd, one doesn't know. And I can, again, just re, reiterate, my father told me, you know, you see if a family pa- person passes away without life insurance, it has tremendous negative things on, on the family. It's considered basic seichel to do, especially if one's younger, they can get into a policy for relatively cheap. I'm telling you, when I was younger, I didn't think on these terms at all. But he, he's, he, you know, when you're when you run a paramedic company, you see what happens. I just, I just, by chance, I bumped into a guy. His name's Albert Kahn in New York. He's very, he's a real estate person. But one of his major things is to make sure that all the rebellion, 
have life insurance policies in New York. And all the people, he just told me, I saw him when I was in New York last week. He said to me, he just got a call from the head of a large coal in Borough Park. who said, thank you very much. You pushed me to get the whole coal life insurance. There's a person in his 20s, late 20s, who just got sick and died suddenly. And his family would have been completely left with nothing but the fact that he bought for $200, $200, uh, uh, I think a year, it's like a basic, basic life insurance. His family has a lot more support than they would have had. Actually, I, I, I will say my father, one thing he had regret, and this is something one should think about as well. If you're the breadwinner of the family, he actually told me this when he got sick, uh, that he was upset. He was a successful business person. Uh, but he told me he had recharata, disability insurance. Again, this is just Chacham If you are the breadwinner of your family, disability insurance is something to ponder. I think life insurance, everyone should have. And disability insurance, one should think about. Um, uh, people have incapacitating illnesses, sickness. Uh, you, you know, so much of these things is just like what happens, you know, it's not crazy. You know, you look at the world. If you are in a situation where you're dependent on one income and you don't have a lot in the bank, right? You know, well, the, that question is something that should really, for many people, it should strongly consider disability insurance. Um, that's just basic, you know, ideas of, of pre-existing insurance. With, with life insurance, obviously there are many options. I'm not going to, my, my role today is not to discuss, you know, Whole life, which I don't think is a good idea for most, versus term versus thirty or many people think is good. That you should speak to somebody who's uh, who's who's uh, well qualified in that. Um, talking about health, I, you know, usually this year I, I push for people to get what they call the halachic living will or a healthcare proxy, and um, I have been in court. Uh, more than once, I've dealt with uh, commissions more than once. With the following scene, you have a person who does not have a, 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 a health proxy, does not have such a document, and the hospital who does not care about you. Let me just let me just be very frank. I I once spoke to the owner of a hospital, a private owner, a very wealthy individual, and I was talking about how they make money. He told me. 90% of the money is the first three to four days the person's in the hospital. Afterwards, they start to lose money actually on patients. Right? They, have a, they have a vested interest. Right? The cost for many illnesses will, will drain their resources. The, the, the government will limit the amount of money they can get per patient. Okay? So the first day or two, it's all lishma for them. They get the money and they're happy to be there. There's a certain point where they don't want people in the hospital because they lose money. We are all biased when we lose money. The hospitals are no different. They don't even know who we are. Okay, I'm not saying that every hospital is looking to kill people, but if anything is a close call on their part, they will, they will look to do things which may not be your will. Um, and uh, a halakhic living will is a protection for that. I had one case, actually just to, to talk about a double whammy, I didn't even know the person. Uh, but another rabbi asked me to get involved in this from the Bay Area. And it was a brother and a sister. This is, this is a brother and a sister. Uh, the sister was completely secular. The brother was almost completely secular. <laughs> but the brother wanted the, the father to stay alive. father was semi-conscious. Whenever he, the brother would go in there, he would shake his hand, 
smile at him. Uh, but he was in a situation which he, so he knew the son was coming into the room. And he was on life support in Stanford. And, I, and the sister had power of attorney. There was no health proxy. So the, the father never ex- said what he wanted. So the sister said, no more care. The brother wanted care. And so they can't, if he was considered a living, they can't do anything. But it, it, between the hospital and the sister, who had power of attorney, the sister wasn't even around. The brother, the, the brother ultimately, uh, you know, uh, so, semi-won, semi-lost. Because I think we actually helped. But I can tell you, I remember Stanford. Stanford Hospital was in the room arguing. I'm listening to these people argue. We care about the patient. We can't watch him suffer. We need to, pull the, we need to, to stop giving him care. We care about him. I would have loved to cross-examine them. Like, do, lady, do you even, have you even seen this patient? What do you mean you care about him? Right? He's, he, every time he sees his son, he smiles and shakes his hand. Right? These are, this, this topic, you, if you don't have protection, you are at the will of people who don't care about halacha. Um, and a health proxy is a legal document, which, you know, you know, in a sense, I just want to say one thing. You know, there's a misnomer. We keep people alive under all circumstances. Not necessarily true. We view life as paramount, but there are certain circumstances where we don't, you know, force uh, extraordinary life, uh, measures to give life. That's for sure the case. Certainly, if people are are in a fatal situation, to do extra care. I, I don't. I really don't want to give the details because whatever I say, I'm worried will be misapplied. Uh, uh, suffice it to say, it's there. You, you need expertise in Jewish law. You need expertise in medical care. But if you have a healthcare proxy, you empower a an agent you can trust to, to care, a an agent you can trust, um, and b that it has to be done according to Jewish law, according to Orthodox Jewish law. So number one is you need an agent you can trust. About a year and a half ago, I'll never, I'm not, this is going to stay in my mind always. There's a lady, she's a member of Temple Emanuel, who I happen to have a connection with. Um, they asked me to go save Vidoy. I knew this lady. I had actually had her in my house the, the previous circus. Uh, she was, her, her children, she had no biological children. She had a stepchild who was she adopted through marriage, who was, who was going to inherit everything that she left over, and there was a lot. Uh, and I walked into the room. The, the, I had a normal conversation with this lady. I'm talking normal. I said to her, so-and-so, do you want to come again for sukkah? She nods her head. She understands everything I'm saying. Like literally every word I am saying. You know, you know she would happen to be in, in, in a degree of pain. And there's no question about that. Uh, but I had a completely normal conversation with her. And, and not like she was, she was completely lucid. Uh, and it was clear to me that within a very short period, they were about to pull you know, the, the machines would die, she was going she was going to die with it. I mean, I left the, the hospital as soon as possible because as far as Jewish law is concerned, that's murder, right? That, so that this lady, <coughs> the last thing in her life, is, as far as Jewish law is concerned, her stepdaughter took a gun to her head and shot her or starved her, okay, or, or suffocated her, right? If you would see somebody, you choke them to death, right? That's, uh, that's the ethics of a lot of the, uh, the American system. They don't have a, a, an ethics of life is paramount value. It's quality of life. Right? So if you're, if you're somewhat sick, 
and obviously there's certain countries in Europe, Europe have a very low bar about this, or you're somewhat depressed, then life isn't worth living, as opposed to us where life is always valuable. They don't have an ethics uh, which says, you know, murder is murder. I, I still, of course, you can't physically kill a person, but you can certainly withhold stuff. You can starve a person to death. You can starve a person to death. Literally, you can starve a person to death. You could take off all oxygen supplies. Uh, again, there are times where, we, again, I don't want to get to a lot, but you need, if you, if you care about Jewish law, and the last thing you want to make sure to do in this world is God's desire. And the last thing you want to do to this world is not to make your children murderers or grandchildren murderers. So one should make sure that this is taken care of. There's a, halakha, there's a healthcare proxy with A, an executor. You don't need visionaries. You know, the, 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 let me give an example. Um, you know, there are times, uh, actually, that was down. Like Moshe says as, as follows. The person's in a terminal condition. This patient is in unbearable pain and suffering. Um, and um, the, the, they need painful invasive treatments or serious chemotherapy to stay alive. If the patient chooses under those circumstances, they don't have to take the, the, the treatment. Okay? Painful, terminal, and extraordinary care. Under certain, those circumstances, you're not obligated to be treated. If you want to be treated, you're obligated. So what, what happens is, is the Moshe says, let's say the patient is non-responsive. So what should you do then? So he says the child is obligated to do what the parent would have wanted. The parent expressed a will. Right? That, you know, usually people don't go from zero to serious chemotherapy, what they would like to be done to them. You don't follow what you want. You need to follow what the parent wants. Right? And so if a child is doesn't have those kind of viewpoints, you have to be careful that this child is able to do exactly that. Okay, you need an executor. All wills need something. They don't need visionaries for wills. That's <laughs> a real life will or a, 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 a health proxy. You need an executor. The person is going to do what you want, not what they want. Right? right? And ex- you know, imagine you say, I like my house to go here, and the person who executes the will gives it to somebody else. Is that what you want? Right? So in getting a will, you need someone who can execute the will. And that includes a halakhic, a, a, a halakhic proxy. You could take a halakhic proxy. I know Kevin has done this many others. The OU has a database. It's a national database. You want, I would suggest you put it, if you do the, the halakhic will, which is a legal document, uh, a living will, you put it on the OU database. They can pull down on any hospital. You don't need to. It's there for anyone to, to access. There are cards. If anyone needs these cards, you can put them in your wallet, which, which, which are legally bonding cards that have this. I would also suggest uh, not never to get a DNR. What's a DNR, Nahum? Yeah. Do not resuscitate. Um, as a general rule, because if you, if, you, if you have a luck well, you can play it by ear. But if you have a DNR, if you have a DNR, typically the care of a hospital will be much lower because the, the liability for the hospital is much less. Right, you have expressed less of an interest in your life. They will have less of an interest in your life. Right, if you sign a DNR, you're putting yourself at somewhat of risk. It doesn't mean you always have to resuscitate, but if you say DNR, no matter what, I'll tell you a real life story. Somebody you all know, um, Ben Simon. Ben Simon, um, the last maybe it was about three years before he died, um, he was he was always in and out of hospitals. He had been sick the last several years of his life. And some lady, some lady 
said to him, do you want to sign this paper? Uh, he didn't really understand what he was signing. When I sign, you'll we'll put you in something called, God. it's a form of hospice care, there'll be a DNR, and that we won't do anything. The way she described, the way my understanding is, we won't do anything crazy to you if you're very sick. We won't do anything crazy to you. Now, many of us, it's, you know, I don't think crazy, if we, because we won't really push you to stay alive. So he signed the paper. Meanwhile, he has a minor, 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 minor heart attack. They bring him into the hospital. And um, he has a DNR signed. And Victoria is there. And she's, they, she's, they're not treating him. She said, what are you doing? And he said, hey, well, he signed this. And she, he screams her head off. Like, what? You know, they all, you know, they, they, you know that's, he, you know, he didn't know what he was signing. And she's screaming, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to, you know, you know, every, you know, this is a you know, true story. Right? And... Yeah, they're like, you know, I'm his wife, I have the, I'm the power of attorney, he has no idea, you, t- you didn't have that, you know, she, she, she didn't say that, she didn't have the knowledge. You tricked him, he, there's no way he would have wanted this. So that ended up treating him. And within 36 hours, I was in the room with the, the Simons at the time, and two social workers, from Ka- this is in Kaiser. And the, the social worker said, well, I, you, she says to him, are you set to sign? I asked you if you want to sign this, and you said yes. So Ben, I said to Ben, I said, I said you know, uh, actually there's another, I remember Gerilyn, her first friend Gerilyn, like she's calling them, you guys are murderers! She's great, she's a little you guys are a bunch of murderers here, you just wanted to kill him. I said, let me ask you a question, Ben. Ben, if, if you sign, if you sign this paper, I want you to understand this. If you, you if you, anything happens to even, you know, if a heart attack, they're not going to treat you really, necessarily. You know, do you want to see your, your daughter, your daughter, uh, is pregnant. This is Kareem's first baby. Do you want to see your grandchild when your grandchild is born? He says, yes. So I said, do you realize if you sign this, you may not see your grandchild? And, you know, they, they disregarded, he obviously didn't want to do that, disregarded, he lived for three more years. You know, so that, not only was that grandson, they would see the Sandik, would see the godfather on his lap, but he saw another grandchild. David got married away in Israel. He watched the wedding. I mean, he saw a three more years of life. But they would have been lost. Literally, Victoria didn't scream her head off in the hospital, right? That DNR would have killed him. So I strongly under, suggest don't sign that, right? Because you, you will endanger yourself. Again, there are times where you don't resuscitate, but don't make it into some kind of blanket rule under all cases and all circumstances, right? You, what you do need is to have, everyone needs to have an agent who you trust, who cares about you, not about your will, <laughs> Because there are people who have a vested interest in you passing away. I've seen this, okay? And I'm unbiased in this. Who, who don't care about you. If anything comes to throw, if they stand to benefit for something, they will make the wrong decision. There are people who are very, uh, who are mean well, who honestly mean well, who are good people, but their Weltanschauung, their worldview, is one of, you know, if they can't play golf, they can't go skiing or, or sailing, then life is very, it has no value. And they would, if they can't imagine that for themselves, they don't want that for you. And we generally have a very different viewpoint of the world, right? Uh, so it's important that this is done. Um, another thing that one should strongly consider doing is HIPAA. I had this, unfortunately, as well. Uh, HIPAA, which is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, will block... Almost everyone 
from getting information, many family, everyone meaning family members, close family members, uh, getting health information from doctors uh, uh, unless a patient has signed a release. So if you want, if you have people you expect to take care of you, or if you have a parent who's getting elderly and you want to make sure you can take proper care of them, make sure they sign a release that all of the information, right? Let's say one person has a power of attorney. They're only going to give it the, the information to the person it is. If you have six children and the other five children came and called a doctor, you know, and get really information. When I was in, in New York just now, um, my, my brother-in-law was at my mother-in-law's for Shabbos. His wife went to, went to labor, drove from Brooklyn back to Lakewood, uh, and had a baby that Saturday. So they called up Saturday night, they called the hospital, did, was Moshe Zakheim is, did he, could we find that he had a baby? What the baby was? We can't tell you. They called it, I'm his mother! I'm not telling you. My, my mother thought she could sweet talk him, come on, please, you know, you know he loves me. This lady, I can't help you. And the truth is, they're doing their job, right? They're not going to tell you. So if you want to make sure that the people who need to make decisions, you know, you, uh, these times are so stressful, right? It's so stressful. And, and you know, you know, making life and death decisions or telling relatives when they should come in for a funeral or when they should see ba- say goodbye to mom or dad, when a child who's very critically sick, when somebody should know about this, you, you can't make... I, you know, if, if I have to make a decision, I want first-hand information. I'm going to play telephone with a doctor. If I can't speak to a doctor. I, you know, I get questions about Yom Kippur sometimes, like just small questions. I said, let, let me speak to the doctor. I mean, are you going to tell me telephone, what the doctor says, which is so case detail-oriented? So if you have, rel- a, either for yourself or for other people, realize that HIPAA will block information. You should have a release form for the people you want that information given to, okay? And you can't scream at the doctors because they're just going to do their job. They're not going to go to, to jail for you, right? They're going to say, I can't tell you. You're going to be, I'm a son. I'm a daughter. It's my, you know, it's my son or daughter. Well, if your son or daughter is 35 years old, okay, they can't, they're not going to give the information as a general rule. It doesn't make a difference. So you, you need something called a HIPAA release form. Also, as far as also, in, in, you know, especially if you have a health condition, but in general, everyone should have in their wallet, their phone, dumb phone or smartphone, ICE information in case of emergency. Who are your emergency contacts? Right? That's something that should be simple. Then everybody's phone, there should be, because actually paramedics are trained, first thing they find somebody in the wallet or on the phone to look for ICE in case of emergency information. This needs a little bit of thought, right? <laughs> One of my parents are much more calmer than the other. Who would I want them, who would, who would I want to be getting that phone call? Not got her me or anyone else. But who is the person who has the ability to handle the situation? There are people who, you know, if their kid gets a scrape, have a nervous breakdown. They're not the good person to deal with that. But they may be the only person. All of these things that we're going to go for right now needs thought. You have to be, as I started in the beginning, chacham v'navon, wise and discerning. If you have a decision like this, who would be the first person to take the call in case of emergency? If you have a, an elderly relative, they should certainly make sure they have ICE information on them wherever they are. I, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten calls that their parent or grandparent is missing. Right? 
and they try, start calling hospitals to find where they are. It means they have no idea where they are. And you know what? The hospital has no idea who this person's relative is. What happens if an 85-year-old lady gets, falls down and they have no idea what are they going to do? If she fell down the street in the park somewhere, how do they know, how do they know where she is? How do they know? They're going to bring her in and treat her, but they don't know who the family is. They're not investigative units. Right? And very often, elderly people don't carry something. Teenagers will not carry things around them, all, usually. Right? And they can walk on the street and things happen. Right? So it's important to have on your phone, right? on your phone or in your wallet, ICE information. Right? Um, next major topic I want to talk about is estate planning. And, I, you know, and again, when I started with, with, with Professor Mann and the Dear Ann and Dear Abby, this area, um, the damage that this could do, if not done correctly, is lifetime. You know, you can build a family in your life and destroy it with your death. You can build a harmonious family and destroy it with your death. You could destroy your like, you could destroy your family business, <laughs> and you could destroy your family if not done correctly. Right? Um, to say the least, uh, in, in all of this, you need a, a, a wise and discerning attorney. Jack, are you a wise and discerning attorney? Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> Get Jackie in the back on the right days. Uh, because really, I'm, I'm sure Jack, if he, if he have any questions afterwards, he is a wise and discerning attorney. If, if things are done incorrectly, as I mentioned, all those cases, dear Ann and dear Abby, these family fights, many of them had attorneys, but they didn't think through the, the issues. Right. Sometimes it's not the attorney's fault. You know whose fault it is? The, the people coming to them. You, you, attorney can't help you if you don't help yourself. Not, they don't know your family dynamics. We need to think through these areas. This is the hardest thing, and I'm going to get to some of the topics. Um, you know, with, first of all, without a will, the state will decide what happens to you. So, right, every state has intestate rules. Right? If you don't decide... You're somebody else is going to decide what happens to, which will be against Jewish law. You know, uh, Jewish law. You know, we will have, you know, for most of us, have documents to keep Jewish law. Uh, actually, I did this with Sam and with other people over the past few years uh, to keep Jewish law and to keep and to keep uh, to do what you know. So technically, the wife is a creditor in Jewish law, and she's not a, a recipient of the state. She has a first lien on the state. Lots of laws of firstborn gets twice the amount. How boys get. How girls get well. If we we do it, we can do it correctly to do our our will judiciously. If the state does it, they will completely abrogate anything of Jewish law. In fact, they, you may have considerations for your children. One kid is sicker. One kid has you know. States not going to say this son makes three million dollars a year and this son makes fifty thousand dollars a year. They're going to split the state based on what they want to do, right? And that they, they're not going to take into any of your family dynamics. It's it's a it's an uncaring. Unscientific method to split up your estate. They're not going to take into account, you know, this child spoke to you every day and helped you, and the other child hated your guts, right? Unless there's some, you know, as a general, they're going to just split your money. Um, so you want to make sure, first of all, the Torah law uh, is taken into uh, cons- consideration. Um, when you do a will, when you do a will, Every aspect has to be with tremendous thoughts. You know, there's a saying, Ezuhu ha-chacham, haroes Who is the wise person who sees the future? It doesn't mean something you can't know. It means something you could know. You just need to think it through. 
what happens if you do so and so? We just read the part about Joseph and his brothers. Kids will be jealous, right? A will should be thought out how it will affect the family, right? There's tough decisions to be made, right? If there's a business and one kid has business sense and the other doesn't, what are you going to do? You need to think about this, right? right? If there's a business, right, you need to think about who could run the business correctly, and if they give, if you're in the business, how are you going to compensate for the other kids? All of this, you know, an attorney's not going to know this. He'll ask you good questions, but you, we need to think about this, right? Um, you know, if one thing is getting more things, I mean, all, you know, as a general, as a general rule, let's say you have three kids and you put them all into business together, you may be setting them up for failure. I'm giving them the exact same thing, but guess what? Your son is brilliant. He went to Penn for business. Gordon. How much more brilliant can the guy be? He's a great business person. And, but you make the kids work together. You say all three. And your other son is a moron. He spends all his money in Las Vegas. He can care less about anything which is valuable. So you put those two, you, you set them up as business partners. What are you setting them up for? Failure. Right? You're setting them up for failure very often. So, you know, again, I'm not saying that you can't do that, but you've got to think through these things. This is your legacy. Right? You, the way you write in the will, you need to think through 150 years now, permutations. What could happen? What makes sense? Right? This is not a small thing. If you have a kid with special needs, you better think that through very carefully what that child is going to need, who, you know, who it is. The next part of the will is the hardest part. I, and, I, and if you ever do this, if you have young children, who gets custody? You know what that is? By the way, if you're young and you've not written a will... Custody will not be up to you necessarily. I mean, you, this is serious stuff. You know, you know, talk about damaging children for life, right? If it's not there, who's going to decide it? Uh, the courts. That's right. And the courts don't know that your mother-in-law or mother are not proper for kids. They may be a successful business lady, but they're not a good mother, right? They don't have time for the grandchildren, right? These are. Th- I, I I once had somebody from this show about seven or eight years ago. The kids are, the kids are a little bit older now came to me, they're writing a will back and forth. Every time they think about one kid, where to give them, they couldn't figure out what to do. You know what? I give that person credit. They took it very seriously. It wasn't annoying to me. They, this, is real, this is real life. God forbid this happens. You've got to think through. Right? Who would be... This kid needs a lot of TLC. Who could give that kid TLC? Right? This kid needs to be, have to go to certain schools. Where, where, where would they be in the certain schools? If that would happen... This is... You need to be thought out. What would make sense... God forbid, and then one, you know, anything ever happens, what's the best for this child? Right? Wills are, you know, are, are challenging in this. Um, you have specific jewelry. If you don't say what this jewelry is, you have a jewelry box. Right? Who's getting it? And how's it going? Who is it meaningful to? Right? These things need to be thought out. You have an heirloom in your family. Who should you think about giving this to? Um, Charity, uh, you know, it's a, it's a remarkable thing. Is it, we Jewish Jews are the most charitable people in the world. Right? We are the most charitable. It comes. It's in our DNA, our spiritual DNA. It's in our it's in our upbringing to be charitable. Um, you know, I'm not saying just for Jewish causes. For you know, secular Jews, we give to all kinds of causes. Just we, you know, I think for years, the American Red Cross is over fifty percent. The donations that were coming for Jews, hospitals, universities, political campaigns, 
better, better, good, right? And people are very charitable people. Um, but we have laws. And that means, as a general rule, we give 10%. And once, as a general rule, not allowed to give more than 20%. Okay, but on one's death, they can give considerably more. Uh, you know, some say up to 50%. Some say, in theory, could even give their whole estate, but it's not private. So, so we also have lots of inheritance. So one should do both. I want to just explain something to you. You know, again, if you have a very modest estate, the reason people leave to their children, I'm not talking about, you know, the, the is to give, it's, first they work, it's an incentive for them to give to their children, but we all, our children or our grandchildren or our nephews and nieces or our good, we, we're investing in them, right? When you leave over for somebody, you are giving them the ability to carry on and do great things in this world. So if you have a close relative, you would like to empower them to be the most that they could be in this world, right? So, but remember one thing, after we die, we're on our own. So it could be if, if your children do well, you know who else does well? You do well. If your grandchildren do well, you do well. If you have a nephew or niece who you love and they're, they're great people and they do well and you empower them, you're doing well. But you know the best thing you can do well is things you did yourself and other people. And charity, after a person dies, right, is one of the most important things a person could do. So if you have a larger state, I have the following, you know, it always bothers me. A person has a $50 million estate. I don't know if anyone has that. If you do, please speak to me as soon as possible. Do you think if two kids, they each need $25 million, what are they going to do with that? What are they going to do with that? You know, very often, it's not going to be good for them, quite frankly. You should give a large amount to charity. Right? That's your legacy. If you, if, you know, if, you, if you give that over, that will be for, you know, you invest in it. That's with you in Shemayim. Uh, you know, you, uh, again, you should, you, we have laws of inherent reasons. You shouldn't give everything to charity. I think that's, when I saw someone sign, they gave 99% of their wealth to charity. I thought it was obscene. Right? I would certainly, but up to 50% is certainly a Jewish idea. Now, if it's a very modest estate, and your children need it, or grandchildren, or, your, or, or a, person's, a young person is sick, and they have parents who need it, whatever it may be, I'm not talking about that. But everyone should leave something for a charity in the world. Everybody should. I mean, this is your last, this is your last, it will be the last deed of your life. Afterwards, you know when your child gives charity in your memory, who's giving the charity? They are. It's not up to you. And you know what? Some children do it, and some do not. I can't tell you how many, how depressing it is to me when I say to a person, you know, you're coming to Kash, say Kash for your, your mother tomorrow morning. No. Why not? It's too early for me. I have no mercy on such people. I say, too early? Your mother woke up in three... You know, actually, my daughter, Kedver, right now, is in New York, right? She's the flu. She's calling my house in the middle of the night. Like, my wife is so nice. I'm like, tell her to call in the morning. <laughs> you know, at three in the morning, she's calling. She's like, my daughter. You know, I'm, I'm joking around, but, you know, you know me telling she's, she's almost 16. Yeah, you know, your mother woke up for you left and right. You know, and you can't wake up and for to say Kaddish, you're a bum. I say a little bit nicer, not much nicer, but yeah, yeah. you're a bum. You don't wake up to say Kaddish for your mother. You ask somebody else, you ask Manasha or Howard to say Kaddish. What do you, you could be waking, so I'm telling you, the reality is, is people don't give as much. When they get the money in their hands, it's their money. They'll do what they want. Some of them will give a decent enough to their, their parents, and many will not. If you, you, you know, uh, it is a Jewish practice to leave over in every will, staka. If you benefited from a place, you surely hakar It's it, it, if you if you uh, believe in something, you're investing. You know, the Orachaim. I always see this. The Orachaim Hakadosh is one of the great commentaries on Chumash. 
And in the beginning of his commentary, thanks to six people who donated for his commentary to be published. That, that was about 350 years ago. Though that commentary is studied weekly by tens of thousands, and hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, those six people are still getting rewards. Now, this room, I, I always say this synagogue, there are people who died 20 years ago and 30 years ago, but we pray in here every day, and every day they get a merit. Every day they get a merit because they invest in the synagogue. Right? Every single, every class, I don't know what the, percent, I don't know what the stock percentage is, God's trust to God. They, they, this place is because of people's time, energy, money, right? So if you gave money, it doesn't disappear over time. It's an investment in, in the future. Charity should certainly be part. I've told people who don't have kids to say kaj for them. You should have in the will so the, the money set aside for, or you can name the, name the organization, even better, that they should say kaj for you for, uh, for, for the year. Um, also, just, you know, with this idea of wills, um, very often, some people, and this is again, you can speak to an attorney about, will have something called a revocable living trust, uh, which will allow you and your loved ones to make financial decisions for you with your finances uh, if you lose mental capacity and if you lose the ability to make those decisions. So, let's say a person has uh, their spouse predeceases them, they have an estate, but they now have dementia. So. How is how they're gonna how you gonna access that right? Or how are people make decisions? Let's say the children or relatives who have it don't have the money. I've had a few cases where it's not it's a cousin making these decisions, and they themselves are not wealthy, but the person has a large estate. That those are situations in something called a revocable living trust. Okay, I just I'm, I'm not gonna get I'm just to speak to your personal attorney about. Uh, also, uh, like that, a person should have a durable. Power of attorney, which allows like uh, IRAs, four hundred one ks, filing income taxes. Right? Has someone file income taxes for a person who has making money in the stock market, and no one's there to make the decisions for them? Right? Right. So you'd also, I, I, you know, both of those are important instruments to have. If you have yourself or, or relatives, they should, and they have estates, so they have to make the decisions. When they lose seichel, you're stuck. Right? If they, you know, when they lose their ability to think, you're stuck to a large extent. So things like a durable power of attorney, uh, a, a, a revocable living trust. I can tell you, I, 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 I can tell you that very, very often I get people because again, I get it as a rabbi. I get it because my background is law, and I also get it because of the Kedisha. So I get calls all, all, all the time. You know, how many people are making poor decisions because the, the people making the decisions don't have access to the money. And so, like everything is like, uh, I don't have the money for this. What should I do? I, you know, the money's locked up or tied up. But, 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 you know, so who suffers? I want to know who suffers. The person who didn't do it. They don't have this revocable living trust or durable power of attorney. The people who actually care about them and love them are blocked to an extent. Sometimes I'm, I'm just saying generalities. This is just seichel, chacham v'navon, wise and discerning, planning ahead to make sure that the person can get the best care. That their assets are managed. Imagine you have somebody who worked for 65 years on a business and he loses his ability to make decisions and the people who can help protect his assets can't do it, can't do that, right? And, and sometimes it's a stroke that happens to the person and it's too late, right? Yesterday they were walking in the street and today they had a stroke. They can't make, they can't make, like it wasn't planned, right? And this person has a multi-pronged business, 
or a, or a house or an estate or a lot of other things, and the people can't access it, or they invested in in a company, uh, whatever this company is, it's you know in Venezuela, and and, and, and right now it's, you gotta sell, it and you can't sell, the money's locked, right? It's locked. So these instruments allow people to help themselves, right? You create a, a durable power of attorney. You allow your loved ones to make the decision. Now, you know, Michelle, your son's getting married. Three weeks, right? Could Josh take, decide what's going on with your estate today? No. No. Right. No. Why? He's, he's getting married. He's a young adult. He's an uh, up-and-coming wine company. Why can't he decide for you? Well, we need my Rachel for the year. Well, she can't decide for you today either, could she? She's already husband. Yeah, she can invest for you? Right, okay, but, but, but if you don't do that, what would happen? No. Right? Actually, my father, my father, my father, one of the reasons I thought about trust in the States, my father has a, a very large CPA firm in Florida. And one of the things he does, you know, Florida is a haven uh, for, for say, winter. People move there from the Northeast and Canada and, and the Midwest to retire. So it has great estate. There's no estate tax. State, state tax. Tax rates are great. So there's huge people, people of small business, middle business. He has like lots of people like that. I remember my father had a client. The person started to lose his seichel. He was going into banks and ATMs, taking money and just giving to people. Do you understand? This is his client, right? He, his guy was in his late 70s, just whatever it is, was going into banks. He was worth several million dollars, was going into banks, taking cash. And, you know, I said, I said, where is he going? Tell me where he's going next. You know, I'll meet him, I'll meet him there, right? right. No, you know, but it's not, no joke. You know what the problem was? No one could stop him. You had, to, you had to actually had to get a, my father because this guy had no no one really watching him. So he had look at this way. He had my father said he had nobody and no power of attorney for anybody. I think he had no children. Okay, he had no no one in charge of him. My father had to get a court order to show this person was mentally incapacitated so they could stop him from doing this. But he couldn't. My father couldn't stop him. Guy's seventy seven years old. How's he going to stop the guy? Right. Right? The guy was going into banks, just giving out money. I don't even know how he found my father. My father was his CPA. It wasn't even his attorney. But my father went. He obviously deals with his attorneys all the time. He got a court order to show this guy he's mentally incapacitated, to stop him. Because no one else could. Okay? I'm just showing you. These are things, you know, anyone whose parents are over 75 or, or 80 or we ourselves are getting older, these are things you got to think about. Uh, ethical, uh, you know, I mentioned on Shabbos that Jacob, uh, he, in his last uh, day of his life, last, and, and you see this thing by Moshe, you see by King David, you see by many others, they give their children an ethical will. Okay, I'm, not, I'm not talking about doing tournaments today because that's for every day, but an ethical will, if you have a vision for your family, an ethical will is a certainly, you know, to us, the passing of generations, it could be to nieces, nephews, cousins, fellow congregants, it's an important thing to do ahead of time. Right? The, the Shlomo Kluger, who is one of the greatest sages, was the Rav of Brody, he was an orphan. He was raised actually by the Magim Dubna. And from the age that his father passed away, every year he would write an ethical will. And it would change over time. Actually, we have many of his ethical wills. But he put tremendous thought what he wanted to tell his children. What was important to him? What is his leg- What is the legacy? What do I hope for you? What do I expect for you? And I only mention this because, you know, not everyone has a chance in their deathbed to tell over to their children. Sometimes we don't know what it's going to be. 
you lose your ability to think. Right? And ethical law is your, is your la- this um, is the last bequeath you can give it to your children or grandchildren or relatives or friends. But it takes you to plan this ahead of time. You know, they don't know what it's going to be. When a person is sick, they can't necessarily think about this. Um, next topic, burial arrangements. Woo. Just today, the past 24 hours, I had a case um, of somebody who wanted to get cremated, the grandparent. Why do they want to get cremated? For financial, for financial um, reasons. They have no money. Now, I, I'm not going to go into cremation now. As everyone knows, about a year and a half ago, the Hever Kadisha brought Rabbi Kornbuth uh, to speak about cremation. I've mentioned over the years as well. But cremation is the worst possible thing that could happen to a dead person. And most, I can't even think of too many things that a living person could do. Cremation is the opposite of Judaism. It, it, it blocks a person from being resurrected from the dead. You do not do a tahara on a cremated person, according to most opinions. You do not say kaddish for a person who's cremated. You do not say shit shiva for a person who's cremated. Cremation is the, the antithesis of all that's Jewish. Okay? I, and anyone who wants any material, the Chavakadisha website has it. I, I'm happy to give anyone the cremation. Anyone you know is going to be cremated, you should do anything and everything that you could to stop that from happening. Cremation is such... And today... Howard was there. We went to San Francisco. We had, when Ray Cornwood came, we had San Francisco, uh, San Jose, and Palo Alto. We had, we had him speak. And, you know, and obviously, he was in the papers uh, as well afterwards. But in San Francisco, there was a Chinese group that was there. We were outside. They said, as we were having a talk in cremation, they said, Ooh, could we come? So I was like, surprised. And he said, You know, it's against cremation. Oh, we don't want to come. Like, they, all these Chinese people got cremated. Like, they thought we were talking about. Good cremation tactics. Right? We, we, so we live in a culture where a lot of people are cremated. Uh, and if you're not observant, and you're not traditional, there's a cost incentive towards cremation. So I'm, I'm not talking about cremation, but one thing I want to say is that this family uh, were able to make serious arrangements for burial, and I'm actually helping them uh, to, uh, to an extent to get the money for the burial, but I want you to know how, how this is happening because they have the time and the preparation ahead of time. If the person would have died and had no preparation, I don't know what happened. The person could have been cremated. You know why? Because they, they, they've been discussing with the, with the mortuary for several days already how, about the cost. The person's in hospice of the cost of burial. So they've actually they built their own coffin, this family. They built their own coffin. Okay? because they know how to build a coffin. But my point is, the reason that this grandma is going to be buried is because of advanced preparation. <laughs> if, if it would have been sudden death, I don't know what would have happened. Uh, they may have wanted to get buried, it would have been a whole, but the burial preparation, this situation, it's only actually a couple weeks, so the, the person is only going to live for, most likely for a short period longer. You know? But it's, the, the reason there's going to be a, a, good, a good ending here, Bez Hashem, is because in these last couple of weeks, they've made every effort to make sure that the grandparent is buried. If the grandparent would have suddenly died and there'd be no preparation for burial, I, I shudder to think what could have ha- possibly happened. And I, and I say this because cremation is the worst. The worst. Anyone, the more knowledge of this, if you can tell a person, if you have relatives and they're going to be cremated, they, they are, they are, it's basically, it's worse than taking to a guy and blowing his head off. I mean, literally, I mean, I mean worse I could compare it to. It is the worst thing. You can't even say Kaddish, Tarot, Shiva, nothing. 
And you know, and people live in cultures today where it's totally normal as a financial. So, and also autopsies, by the way, as a general rule, we, the Torah holds kedusha of the body. You need to make sure that in your will or for anything else, is autopsies. Actually, there are certain cases where autopsies are allowed, uh, but those are very rare. Okay, so as I mentioned, just this case the past week I'm dealing with, uh, burial decisions are super duper important. I, I'm going to say something which I, which I, you know, which is very important. Because I, the, the, this farming down to actually buy a plot, buy a plot is a school law, is auspicious for long life. You know why this farm bring this down? Because the Yitzhahara gains by bahala, confusion, fighting, anger, and if you bought any preparation for death, as I said, is always a win, right? All, everything we're talking about today, every, we, if we're careful about our insurances, about our healthcare pro, pro, policies, about uh, about our wills, ethical wills, the Yitzharas. But you know what happens when when there's there's no preparation, chaos, pandemonium, fighting, tension. And I've been in the ER, your family screaming their heads off at each other. You know, wills being read and people are, are crying, not out of happiness that they got them because they're so upset, right? Uh, you know, people don't, don't know what their father would have wanted with the business. People don't know what their mother would have wanted with the kids, where the kids are going and cut. All these things that happen, if they're not prepared, are tragic and very often tar- dangerous and, and destructive. Oh, it's hard if you have everything prepared ahead of time. There's very little room for, and there's always, there's pain of loss, but there's not the fighting. There's <laughs> not the, the, the tension. It's decided already. You know, and so burying a burial plot is considered a, a, an actually an auspicious thing to do during life. I will say that I honestly believe as a general rule, a person should delay this until they're very clear where they're, where they're going in this world. I'm going to give you an example. When, when I, I remember when Emma L. Jess was told about her final sickness, I mean, the lady was unbelievable. I can't, I can't describe the, 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 the depth of character of, of her, um, imagine getting that news and you know your life is limited. You know, so uh, I was called into the house, uh, you know, and, and one of the things I said to them is, um, actually, I'm going to backtrack. I, I, think, I think I can say this, you know, just about ethical will. Uh, I had this conversation with her and um, she asked Eve to leave. So I'm telling you, I mean, she asked Eve to leave. This is about three months before she passed away. So Eve leaves the room. She said, she told me that I should tell him when she, after she passes away that he should get remarried. Right? She, this is what she tells me. She, she used to get remarried. And about two days before she died, I was in the hospital with her. She told me that again, please tell him to get remarried. I want you to know that about a year, literally a year later, they did it within a few months after he was married. But one of the, what empowered him to do this is what she said. That's an ethical will. Understand that? That's somebody who, who's dying and she's thinking about her husband. That, her saying that, empowered him. That just shows how important it is to have an ethical will. Right? It allowed him to not feel guilty. To not feel guilty. To not feel like, what am I doing? By living, by living you know, by, by going through life and living. That's to her tremendous credit. Um, but one of the things that happened that day uh, I'm just, it was I said to, to her, where would you like to be buried? And I'm going to tell you what, what they told me at first. I blocked them. I said, you can't, you know. I said, you're going to be buried here. Well, who's here? Who's going to visit you? 
You know, think through. Do you, let's, let's go through it. If you're buried in the Bay Area, Eve was not planning to get married. Eve didn't even know she said to get married. He thought he'd be living here, right? You know, well, who's going to visit you here? If you have a daughter in Chicago, she's there. You have a daughter in Israel. Is she planning to stay there? Is your daughter in Chicago planning to stay there? Right? You know, think carefully. I know many people who buy a burial plot and they change jobs, change locations, their kids move somewhere, they want to make Aliyah. You know, you name it. So, buying a burial plot really, it's very hard. It's not like it's a huge market for buying used, you know. Uh, you know, I know somebody from the Temple Sinai down the block just told me, that, uh, recently, not just told me, recently told me uh, that they have plots in Las Gatis. They would like to sell because they have a child on the East Coast they want to be buried near that child. They bought these plots probably 20 years ago. Right? But now they want to change their mind. So think, this is also, where do you see yourself? You know, what, you know, where do you see yourself going with this? You have to think about this ahead of time. If you have a parent, you know, they want to be buried next to someone, you know, well, is mommy alive? Is daddy alive? What happens when they pass away? Who's going to be, who's going to be there? Right? Uh, both, you know, so here's the case. You have a father and mother that are living in um, Cincinnati, Ohio. They live in Cincinnati, Ohio. They have no children living in Cincinnati, Ohio. Right? The children are all living in uh, Miami and Atlanta. Okay? But one parent is going to be alive afterwards, most likely. They may want to see the cave. But what happens after that? Like, I'm not telling you what the answer is. I'm just telling you these things need to be thought out. Right? You know, these things have to be thought out. Uh, one of the, the questions that we get, I often get was, what about Israel? Uh, this week's past week's partial. Where did Jacob want to be buried? Why do you want to be buried in Israel? Several reasons. Well, one reason is because he didn't want to be made into an idolatry. One of those is because lights would happen in, in, in Egypt, right? But the main reason it's given is that the resurrection of the dead will happen in Israel. He didn't have to go under there. There is uh, a, a uh, the Svarim in Gomorrah says that Ula, for example, and the Gemara Sub says that Ula was died in the Kutzlars and he asked to be buried in the land of Israel. He wanted his body to be taken uh, to Israel that the, as far as atonement, forgetting the resurrection of the dead, the, the, the works of Kabbalah say that dying in the land of Israel is very auspicious for the soul. Right? It's a tremendously uh, uh, auspicious for resurrection of the dead, for atonement, uh, for, you know, for closeness. Eventually, all the Jewish people are going to live in Israel. So, right? There's lots of uh, spiritual reasons to want it to be buried in Israel. Some against, some say if you did not live in Israel and you weren't particularly righteous, you should not be buried in Israel. That's an opinion of some of the Kabbalists. Um, but also, this is very important, I mentioned this Saturday about my experience going to my grandparents' kever who were buried in, my, in Mount Lebanon uh, Cemetery in New Jersey. So my, my mother's mother was buried in Israel because her whole life she went to live in Israel and she put in her wealth to be buried in Israel. Um, I'll tell you, actually, I had a relative... Who, who didn't want her to be buried there. And I said, no way. It's not my, not my parents. No way. She wanted it in her well, and that's what she's going to get. <laughs> and that's what happened. Uh, but I'm just, still just pointing out that you have to be very careful at this. Like, you have other people who, and they meant well, by the way. They went to visit the person more. Right? Well, one of the things is the idea to be visit your parents' relatives, relatives to be, to be there. Uh, the Sefer Hasidim, Sefer Hasidim, which is not nothing to do with the Hasidic movement. It's the Hasidic Hasidim, which is everybody who the Hasid, 
in the 12th century. It's, it's one of the great German Rishonim. So the Sefer Chassim says that it's beneficial to the deceased, beneficial to the deceased, when, when their family prays at their grave for their merits, and then they pray for the, for, and you pray to God, but we always pray to God, but it's beneficial for the deceased, and if you go to visit them, they pray for you. You visit your parents, you visit your grandparents, you visit your relatives, and you pray at their, at their grave, they will pray for you. It's benefit for them, it's a benefit for you. I'm telling you, I, I took my son Yosef Meir to Yosef Meir, his, his namesake. I took my daughter Sima to her, her great-great-grandmother, who she's named after. It affects you. And you know who else affects them? So there's a plus about being, being buried in an area where people can visit you. It's known that certain great Rosh Yeshuvas, Rebbas, were specifically asked to be buried in America because they wanted their Hasidim, they wanted their Talmidim to be inspired. They wanted their family to be able to visit them. Right? That's a serious calculation that your family and friends should be able to visit you. Um, um, Rav Henkin didn't like it because he felt that you're setting up people for expectations. If people start getting buried in Israel, everyone's going to have to do it. It's very expensive. And actually, my cousin told me, uh, my cousin is married to Rabbi Avigdor Miller's granddaughter. So... I, I, he, so I said to him, it's, just, it's amazing, but Victor Miller was buried in Israel. Right? He never visited Israel his whole life. So he said to me, he said, you know what? Ray Miller had once had a synagogue, he had a synagogue trip where they organized a trip to Israel and he was going to go. And he asked for a list of who, was gonna, who signed up to go to this trip to Israel. He looks at this list and says, this person can't afford this trip. This person can't afford the trip. This person? They can't, they can't afford to leave work. He canceled the trip. He felt like too many people were going ahead and doing things they can't afford because of the opportunity, because of the pressure. So, you know, so, you know, sort of Hank in held, if you start burying people in Israel, then it's going to create a pressure for everyone who can't necessarily uh, uh, afford it. The Meister May Miller was buried uh, in Israel. But the point is, one should think, do they want to be buried in Israel? There's pluses and minuses. Where they want to be. These are serious thoughts. And I'm telling you right now, there are a lot of not wise and discerning people. They pick burial places. You go there, nobody ever visits them. Nobody ever thinks about it. It's the wrong place. You know why? They made it 20 years ago and they didn't think about what would happen in the future. Like other things, we need this is an area where one has to be thought out. Do you want a chapel service or graveside service? Right? Uh, you know, if you have. Uh, uh, Family members who are not observants, you want to make sure to have a shomer, tahara, halachic burial that needs to be set out. Right? If the people making your decisions for you don't have your values, you better write that down. Um, do you have plots, which are preemie packages? Uh, lot less expensive. Does it say if it's only a wood casket, which is menasha? Was the chavakish like metal caskets? How about oak wood, polished oak wood? Waste the money, and it's, we're, we're going to break. How is not going to do it? There's Jewish law over here. You know, you don't need to be buried in a, a bulletproof casket. On the contrary, you're supposed to, you know, you know, it's, a, it's right. But the type of casket, pre-need. Um, if if this is not, if there's anything that you want to be said in your eulogy, anything part about it, you should write that down. By the way, right. Um, I, I, I unfortunately have given many eulogies. Um, some, like actually her yard site today, 
is Irene Sadovsky, I know. I've walked into people coming into my office 24 hours before a funeral saying, um, can I conduct the funeral? Sometimes I know the people, and sometimes they did, I don't know them at all. They just have no one else, and they're asking me to do it. And I say, oh, tell me about your relative. And they go, uh, like, I don't, I've never met the person. I checked. I just met the family. Like, you know, what do you want me to say? Like, what's important about this person? You know, what, what, what do you want on your tombstone? You know, Rabbi Stein, the greatest sage of the generation, just said what he wants on his tombstone. Very simple things. What do you want on your tombstone? You know, I was in the cemetery. I'm looking at the tombstones of my relatives. It makes an impact on you. Right? It makes an impact. Aryeh Levine, who is known as a Tzadik of Jerusalem, he asked that his tombstone should be written. Now, anyone knows Aryeh Levine? He was one of the most beloved people of Israel. Secular, religious, very religious. He had tremendous impact on many of the early founders of the state of Israel. On the, on the real Haredi part of Israel. Uh, but because he dealt with so many people, especially the early Likud, all of them, Begin, all these people were very, very close to Bari Levine, uh, Sharon, all, you name it. Uh, you know, he said to put on his grave, that I believe with a complete faith in the resurrection of the dead. Because people would visit his grave, you know, and they, either they would miss him or they'd be questioned how this great... So and anyone who goes to his grave, you can go to his grave. Say, he, he believes complete faith in the resurrection of the dead. That's what you see when you go to his grave. You know why that's on his grave? Because he wrote that it, he wants it on his, on his tombstone. You know, it's just something you want on your tombstone. It's just something that's important to you to give over to your children, grandchildren, friends and, uh, friends and relatives. Um... You know, I'm going to tell you, I haven't read it too much, I'm going to be ending very briefly. An unbelievable Mavriya book. The Mavriya book is um, it was one of the greatest Kabbalists of the past few hundred years, and actually has a, one of the most important works on end of life issues. This is what he says Zachinu ben omid al aviv. When a son is by a father, a child by a parent, Be'es pitiroso, at the time of the parent's passing, ha'avim haben, it's a moment of, of, of kindness from the parent to the child, and from the child to the parent. Ha'av ben hazeh. At that moment, when the, when the parent is dying, the parent is going to give over to the child this world, material assets, Lamaisa mitzvahs, um, it's a time where a parent gives a, ch- a blessing to a child. The righteous, blessed are children at the time of their death, as we saw this is parsha. And he gives them an inheritance in order to be mamed al raglav. The child should have what to live with and to be successful in this world, to have the ability to to live a good life and to be not to worry about parnasa and not to, to worry about paying his, their bills. Uh, and to be able to do things. And the, the child takes the father up uh, to be buried uh, and to take care of it. And then he says as follows. You see by Avram and Yitzchak and Yaakov that the children did the burial. And you see that it's a tremendous comfort, spiritual comfort for the father or mother when it's a, ch- when it's a, chi- when it's a child who buries the parents. The Gamken, Vada Yeschus Lahana. It's a win for the, the child to do it as well. And therefore, says the Mavriyabuk, Lo it's not for naught, that the mimic is to be makbid, 
to be careful that the children who are involved in the burial of the parents, right, and in making these decisions, uh, and the, 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 for the, for, it's a merit for both. Right? It's a merit for both. It's a merit for the children that they should be involved in it, and it's a merit for the parent that the children are involved in it. Right? So you want to make sure that, 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 that you empower your children or your relatives to do this correctly. It's a big deal. That's a spiritually uh, a, a big deal. And lastly, just to end, and I'll stay here for any questions afterwards, this is just common sense. I don't want to tell you how many times common sense does not come into play. You need to have a dossier, a file, properly prepared with all your internal information, all documentation, <laughs> includes doctors, your favorite rabbi, uh, <laughs> I, con- when I say contact information, this is a, it's not a joke, passwords to your computer, they're failing, the kids can't get into the accounts, they don't, there's all kinds of things they don't have the password to, do you have safety depo- safe deposit boxes? Where are they? Where are they? Actually, the Gemara has stories of people trying to find where their parents put stuff. Right? Safe deposit bank accounts. Where are the numbers? Where could they be found? Right? Uh, c- cemetery deeds. I've had people call me up. I don't know where I, I don't, where, where's my parent buried. I'm like, I don't know where your parents buried. What are you asking me? Where, where, I only bought a plot somewhere. Hello? Something went wrong there. This is not uncommon. The kids have no idea where the parent bought a plot. I'm not even talking about which plot in the cemetery. They don't know what cemetery. Right? That information is it just common sense. Having it in one file, one, one disk, where it's able to be given over. You know what happens? I'm, I'm telling you now. The best attorneys are not 24-7. They're not around sometimes. Sometimes the attorneys passed away. Right? How are you going to make sure that this is all, this is all, all, all there? All, all there? Um, insurance information. You know, we started out with life insurance. Life insurance is great if you know it exists. Or you can prove it. Or you can have it. Where is insurance infor- I- I- information? Um, inventory of assets. And I was once in a, a shiva house uh, in New York. And a guy walks in. And he tells the family, I'm your father's business partner. The family had no idea that was his business partner. And he actually was not taking, he was giving. You know, the guy was, oh, you know, I, I, I own half the stuff. Let's get right. But he, the kids didn't, they didn't know. Father was very quiet about business. They didn't tell his relatives every, every business partner he had. Right? Who knows which, where, where, where the assets are? Who is involved in the real estate? Nobody should be left guessing. Nobody should be left trying to figure out what the passwords are, where the safety deposits are, who, which, who's the doctors, who's the rabbis. Nobody should have left guessing. And as I started in the beginning, if you do things correctly, if we're chacham v'navon, if we're wise and discerning, we will allow ourselves to live our, our last days and our family members' last days in this world, if we're helping our parents, our siblings, our children, relatives, with dignity, we'll take away the Yitzhaharas. If we, if we properly prepare our insurances, our burial plots, our healthcare proxies, uh, our decisions about guardianship and wills and estates and trusts and, and having revocable trusts, uh, we'll be able to, uh, you know, our final journey and our relative's final journey should be one of meaning, one of calmness, one of appreciation. And if all of this is done, then we can really focus on what's most important 
and getting an eternal bank account, which is Torah and Mitzvah. All of this just allows it for us, allows us for our relatives, and hopefully this was very helpful for all of us today. Okay, thank you.